0: Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Nora Amelia, English advisor with Junior Cycle for Teachers. In this podcast, I spoke with Irish writer Sonia Kelly. Sonia chats to us about her sense of vocation from an early age, the role of rhythm, structure and humour in her work, the importance of giving her audience a meaningful experience and how it takes courage to be yourself in a world where you don't always see yourself reflected. We hope that you enjoy. Sonia, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me today. We'll go right back to the beginning. You said once, I don't know how to describe a vocation, but you're just pulled towards something like a magnet. And you went on to study drama at Trinity College. Is it something that was always there for you as a child, that love of drama, You like that magnet you described?
1: Yeah, I think so. It was just, uh, it's one of those things where You want to do it before you have the consciousness of the vocabulary that there is even an industry for it. And I was always drawn to storytelling, performance, sort of imaginative thinking. And as I grew up and went into school, and then you have to angle yourself so young these days towards something, Every, every interest you have when you're 13 onwards has to be something to do what you'll do for the rest of your life. But I was just magnetized by it. I did have an uncle who was in the business, Frank Kelly. And I just saw how he lived and how, the, how his job informed the type of person he was and how sure he was of it in his own shoes and his own voice. And I was just, I, I knew it was for me. And the first time I went into a theatre to see a play, I think it was probably a in Potter panto, but just the, the the energy of the building. I think teachers get that, like teaching is such a strong vocation as well. and You, you hear about teachers who just, you know, The energy of a school is it just it's a real lifeblood. And for me, it was just the energy of a building of a theatre and the mechanics of it. The Muppet Show was a really big thing when I was a kid because it was always an emergency. It was always 15 seconds to curtain Miss Piggy and the panic that went on behind and the, the presentational aspect of the front. I just couldn't see myself in any other world. And it is about it's a lifestyle choice. It's a way of living. It's a way of being and it's there's a community. And uh, I think if you have that and you have a sense of vocation at a very young age for whatever it is, it's a gift because there's no such thing as Monday morning.
0: I like your reference to the Muppets because I know I've read in, in other interviews that your first ever record was the Muppets' greatest hits that your dad had. Is that correct? That- yes, yeah, Muppets'
1: greatest hits. And when I was growing up, we're talking like pre-digital, pre-digital. Where you had the record player and your parent put the record on for you. I used to stare at that album cover and there was this big photo shoot of all the Muppets. And uh, I would just look at it for hours and listen to the music. Um, And yeah. It's certainly a very special memory. So, you know, I was looking at a theatre from a very early age, a, f- a photograph of a theatre from a very early age. And...
0: So you were looking at th- theatre from a very early age through that record of the Muppets. Is... Yes. Going back to school then, is drama something that you studied at school? Is it something that you enjoyed in school as a teenager?
1: I certainly enjoyed, I enjoyed English. I loved poetry, that soundings book. I loved, I loved the short stories. I loved sonnets. I loved anything that rhymed or anything with symmetry in it. A small thought was introduced at the beginning and and the last two lines it's opera. And I I loved all the romantic poets and all of those. I did have one or two teachers that sort of recognised in me a, a real passion for it. And I was encouraged to foster my creative writing skills and but it was really only in the so the last few years as I got into leaving certificate when everybody was going, Where are you going? What are you going to do? And I was terrible at maths. I was really bad at maths and but I knew I wanted to go and study drama in Trinity because it was the only place in the country then you could do a degree in a formal education. But you had to pass maths to get in to Trinity. So I think like the great gift of having a sense of vocation at that stage in my life was I worked for my Leaving Cert the way I would have never worked if I hadn't had that goal to get into that course. But uh, as much as I wanted to be in work in theatre, I really did want to sit down for four years and read books and study theatre from around the world, lots of non-Western forms of theatre, and the great American playwrights, and I, I wanted to do that. So it, the, the the drama course was a go- the best incentive ever to study my Algebra.
0: I'm interested in what you talked about there, your love of poetry and rhyme and symmetry. A lot of modern poetry now isn't maybe as rhythmic or symmetrical as the traditional poets. So, is that something that's important to you that rhythm, that symmetry?
1: Absolutely, it is. I think audiences, even in theater, and I use the sort of the power of poetry in theater all the time, audiences seek out symmetry. I think that's why dance is so compelling, because everybody is doing exactly the same thing at the same time. But it, it, I use a lot of, of alliteration, and particularly when something is coming towards the end of, of a phase of a dramatic phase in a play, I'll use a rhyming couplet. The wonderful thing about dialogue and talking in theatre is it, it can seem like real life, but it's not really real life. In the wheelchair, in my face. There's a lot of you lean into the rhythm of a sentence, and that's quite pleasurable to listen to. It's like music. It was I, I do think people don't go to the theatre to hear how they talk every day? Like you want something that elevates you and elevates meaning, and I think the rhythms of language can really elevate meaning. That soundings book was never wasted on me you spoke there about leaning into the rhythm of a sentence if that's very important
0: to you do you find then that you are drafting and redrafting a lot to get that rhythm
1: yeah yeah so the beginning you're just trying to get the story out of you the first draft of a play is don't get it right just get it written get to an ending and just let your inner child run And then, when you get to your second draft, then you can bring your scientist in on your inner child. But if you bring the scientist in too soon, you'll just go, it's not very good. And the last thing you want to think about when you sit down to write a play first is that it's not very good. You just want to believe, you just want to believe in it, no matter how big a mess it is. And then you leave it alone for maybe a week or two and then come back to it and go, okay, what have I got? And then I usually do about 10, drafts of a play before it ever sees an actor and then you'll go through a phase of it's rubbish it's nothing and then you bring somebody else in to look at it and go is this one is this a play and they'll they'll give you a few steers because you're looking at something for a very long time you get snowblind, and then you go back to redrafting it again and the place shows up and in those last few drafts you start to get that sort of that beat in the language and you're looking for those words that often mirror uh, that you'll say it, you'll throw away the word at the beginning of the show, but it'll come back at the end and the audience will forget that they remember it or remember that they've forgotten it. And so it, like in the same way, a game of like a game of hurling is elegant. It's elegant because it has structure and form. It lasts for a certain amount of time. It has, it it can only be played in a certain amount of square footage. There has to be a certain amount of players and a certain amount of rules. Otherwise, it would be chaos and it wouldn't be beautiful to look at. And in the same way, a play has to fit into some sort of elegant form. Otherwise, you don't know what you're looking at. And certainly with Wheelchair My Face, some of the structural things that went into it was the, like, I had a load of memories, but that doesn't make a play. So in order to give it sort of, like, What can I say in 60 minutes that will take an audience to a set of feelings? And one of the memories of anybody getting their eyes tested is the the eye chart. So we use the letters on the eye chart to punctuate the time so we begin, to is for glasses. I got my first pair of glasses when I was black. And then you're away with the story. And then when you want to move the story forward, you'd go A, B, E, A, G, H, or whatever it was. The Ioneer Royal Hospital, Ioneer Hospital. And little tricks like that help you give a play a shape that the audience will go, oh, immediately know what she's doing now. She's moving forward in time because she's using the letters.
0: And um, out in what you're saying there, the importance of shape and structure in, in writing in general yeah um, the the link between genres so the link between for example poetry and drama and also need, that need to have patience with what you're writing to sit with it to allow it to distill to be maybe easy on yourself in the first draft like how does that first draft look to you is it on a big piece of paper that you scribble it all over it or what does the drafting look like
1: i'll open a thing like i'll call it a dump document where you just dump stuff and you don't necessarily begin in the middle you just go oh here's the thing or oh, i remember this or, or or it'll be a piece of writing that's like monologue or it'll be a memory and everything kind of goes into that and with them, so that's like some writers call it their pre-first draft, where it's just a p- big pile of mess. So then when you go to your first draft, you can go back to that document and go, but you have to be comfortable with sitting in the mess and have faith that it will get better. And every writer has a day with a script where they go, I have wasted my time. This is absolute rubbish. And that's also a phase of it, because getting honest thoughts out of your head and speaking your truth, it's eggy and it's embarrassing sometimes as well. But sometimes it's when you have those feelings when you're writing, you know you're getting to the centre of something, because if you're writing around a subject and not really saying how you're feeling, an audience will get that straight away.
0: Okay, so the honesty in your writing is very important. And any
1: writer and uh, like writing can be scary sometimes because you have to be honest about sort of unpleasant things. And but you can't give an audience a meaningful experience unless you're prepared to tell it all.
0: I always thought that about poets as well. There really are. There's a vulnerability. Yeah. You're really opening yourself up to the audience. Just to go back uh, a little bit further then. So you started out as an actor, would you say, as opposed yeah. to a writer or were the two of them in sync?
1: Um, I started, I left college and I sort of wrote to all the theatre companies and they said, I said, I did a lot of acting in in college and I, I guess I got a lot of, of attention for that and I fell into the trap of thinking writers were very clever people. I, I was distracted by the amount of attention I got from acting. I played a lot of funny roles and I played a lot of like funny maids and I worked a lot in the gate pretending to be English people. But after about seven or eight years of it, I started to see that, okay, this will be my life and I'm not going to, I'm never going to be asked to play head of Gabler or uh, there's certain leads that were never going to go my way. And there are so many stories not being told. And I can't wait for those stories for somebody else to write them for me to play them, to show up. You could wait your whole life. And if you really want to change the the temperature of how people think in society, you have to be one of the people that write the stories that aren't being written or what you feel. You have to write what you think you'd like to see. So I did start to put things down a bit. I dabbled in stand-up for a while and that really taught me a lot about joke writing and stuff. But I really wanted to marry the discipline of it and the structure of writing a joke to the lyricism of theatre and that you can be funny a bit, but then you can really pack a punch with something. And I wanted to blend those two things. So that's how The Wheelchair in My Face came up. That was my first play.
0: For anyone who's not familiar with that play, could you introduce the play to us?
1: Well, it's called The Wheelchair on My Face. I look back at my myopic childhood around when I was about seven. And there was two major events that year. I got my first pair of glasses and I was making my first Holy Communion. The play is about my memories of those two events colliding. And the journey I had when I got my first pair of glasses People realized that I really couldn't see very much at all. I've had an awful lot of surgeries since those days. But when I got my first pair of glasses, they were an inch thick and it shed a light on a lot of other problems I had with respect to learning. The culture of teaching and the culture of the relationship between teacher and child then was very different. And certain things might have been noticed. So I was unpacking in Ireland as well, and it's changing Ireland through the prism of these two events. So while the play is about, you could technically say it's about getting my first pair of glasses and my first Holy Communion, but it is also about how a child engages with the systems of a country, but also how the systems of a country in terms of what care is provided for children, but also the systems and the culture of a very religious country. So you have this rite of passage of being able to see, but also being presented to the world as a first holy communicant. And Ireland back then was a very different place. I'd say we were wriggling out of a post-theocratic vice grip. It was a very controlling country. It was very controlling around your identity. I didn't want to put on a dress for my first Holy Communion. I felt outside my own body. I felt strange. I felt unusual. But I knew it was so important to other people. And the last thing you could be was not excited about your first Holy Communion. That would be the greatest act of unappreciation you could ever do to your parents. On top of that, you have this giant pair of glasses, which totally goes against the ethos of a beautiful young girl on her first Holy Communion day. And I didn't wear my glasses for my first Holy Communion. And as a result, I couldn't see very well. It was more important to look a certain way than be a certain way. So the idea behind the show is that you have these two things at odds. And it's effectively, it's about a child trying to kick in to their own identity that doesn't sit well with what other people's perception of that identity is and, it, and about acceptance of that identity. So you talk a
0: lot there about appearance versus reality, which is something that we explore in literature all of the time and systems and culture and hierarchy, which I think is something that is, has come into your writing. Is it difficult because it is so autobiographical? Is it difficult to turn fact into a fiction?
1: It can be. And sometimes you have to create a fiction in pursuit of a truth. Drama is real life with all the boring bits knocked out. Sometimes you have to squeeze events slightly closer together than they would have normally happened. Otherwise, you're just going and then this happened and then that happened and then that happened and then the end. So with drama, you have to run your audience through a set of feelings they have to feel relieved and then worried and relieved. And then they're ultimately relieved and then they clap and then they're at the door. They buy a ticket to have their emotions be put on a roller coaster. So there has to be stakes. And I think with The Wheelchair in My Face, that was the thing about it. How do you put stakes into things that, that are just memories and things that just happened? But with these two events colliding, the first pair of glasses, the kind of... The type of glasses where they look like you could buy them in a joke shop and landing on top of a day when that's the last thing anybody wants you to look at created the stakes for the play. And it created worry in the audience's heads. You worry that they'll be okay, and you hope that they'll triumph beyond it. When you're working on a play, those are the things you have to think about all the time. It's like, where are my audience now? How are they doing? The great Margaret Atwood once said, thou shalt not bore. You know, it's your job. You have a contract with somebody who buys a ticket to your show to um, t- to make sure that they're entertained. It's not about me really at the end of the day. It's about creating synergy between everybody's experience and drawing upon my experience to be as relatable as possible to mm-hmm. strangers. So it's really interesting when you take your play to different places, you hear it being heard differently. And you hear the cultural temperature of the audience literally come off the auditorium. So it it won the Scotsman Fringe first
0: award for new writing at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2012 and it received a critic's pick in the New York Times. I think you've alluded to it there already with certain audiences, but how do you account for its popularity? Why do you think it resonates with people?
1: I think all good storytelling unpacks the condition of loneliness. And I think everybody can relate to, at some stage or other in life, you can have all the support of the people around you, but there are certain things you go through alone. And I think with this, the child character, Sonia, at the denouement of the play, has to make a decision, and they have to make that decision alone, regardless of what anybody else thinks about it, which is to put on my glasses so I can see on a very special day when nobody wants to see them. So I think people can relate to that. And the thing about that play was it reminded older people of an Ireland that no longer exists. It talked about a childhood in a still quite relatable way to children. It was one of those plays where it just, like I said, a member of Fishamble produced it. And they said, how do you want to market it? Marketed? And I said, I want grannies to bring their grandchildren. It, it's a family play. It, I, I think that's why it probably went for so long, because it, it, it It excluded as few people as possible.
0: So you say there that all good storytelling unpacks the condition of loneliness. And yet, humor is clearly something that's very important in your writing. Mm. Um, You said once that you were interested in humor and humanity and how they feed into each other. Mm. What way then does humor feed into the work that you do? Or how important is it, despite the fact that you're dealing with serious subject matter, Humour is important to you in your work. Could you talk to us about the relationship between that humour and humanity?
1: Humour is like a, a can opener for a stranger's brain. It is just, it, it, there's your you turn on a tap and then your brain is open and you're more open to hearing about more diverse stories that maybe you wouldn't think is for you. It's a really, like, it... I don't like to rest on gags too much, but I think it's a great way to beckon people in and make them feel safe about maybe more challenging stuff that they might hear later on. I think when people have had a laugh and had a think, they feel like they've had a good brain meal. And sometimes I go and see a comedian or whatever and go, oh, my God, I laugh so much, but I have no idea what they said. And then I go another, see another comedian and I'll go, oh, I laugh, but oh, my God, the, the, the polemic underneath what they were saying was powerful you have to entertain otherwise it's a ted talk so it acts as a
0: hook a platform almost for drawing you in to deal with more serious subject matter throughout just to go back to the wheelchair on my face then what do you would you think is the main message you were trying to convey in the play
1: oh it's a good one i think it takes courage to be yourself and i think it takes courage to be kind being kind is an awful lot harder than people think it is. And I, I think that would be the main thing, that it, it takes courage to be yourself in a world where you don't see yourself reflected. It's a journey worth taking because I think a diverse society is a, is a rich society. And I think the Ireland I grew up in was quite monoracial, monocultural. Everybody went to mass. Everybody was white. Everybody was straight everybody even if they weren't you know and I'm in my late 40s now and I remember in Ireland when it, the feet were just starting to kick out of the shackles and I think Wheelchair My Face is one of those plays where I'm on that cusp generation but I think how we have managed to take a hammer to the moulds that everybody was set in I think is, is admirable.
0: So young people may look at this play and realise how far Ireland has come. Yeah. Your childhood. You speak there also about one message that you might like people to take away from it is that it takes courage to be yourself. It takes courage to be kind. It takes courage to be an individual, particularly if Mm -hmm. you're a young person. Do you think young people are taking this message from your play?
1: Yeah I think so you know I grew up in a time where you were told what to wear there was very little self expression around stuff like that mm-hmm. and now I have friends with you know people children talk about the diversity of their identities so much younger and there's is, there's is credence given to that in families now there are even in tv storytelling now you don't cast anything or write any story that doesn't in some way incorporate a diverse element people with disabilities playing leading roles on tv like it's all opened up and i think i think young people really relate to that and it's really it's not always important i do really do believe this as well i don't need to see myself in everything i watch or every play i go to i don't want to leave going well i wasn't in it so that was rubbish i think we have to be careful of that a bit but i do think it is wonderful to be able to see a show about autism. If you're an autistic person with autistic actress and with deaf actors, leading actors, and, and there's a big thing now where with casting and stuff like that, and certainly telling stories, you have to be think about what story you're telling and do you have the right to tell it? Who does this story belong to? And is it fair that I tell it on their behalf? All of these questions are coming up now and it's creating a really rich sort of landscape of new storytelling. And I think it's I, I think it's an exciting time to be a writer.
0: And if you were to go back to your teenage self, <laughs> what advice would you give yourself right now?
1: Don't worry, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And what would you say was the, the best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh, well, my Uncle Frank, when I asked him about what, what, how to do auditions, he said, if you make a mistake in an audition, make a really big one. Because they'll remember that. <laughs> they'll remember a really big one, but they won't remember a really small one. So the afterwards they'll be going through all the CVs and go, oh, do you remember the one who came in and she fell and she hit her, She walked into the door and then she said, excuse me, to the architrave, whatever. So yeah, I think that's I, th- I think that's good advice. You know, own your flaws, own it all, because it's all you. That's,
0: that's a nice way to finish. You know, don't be afraid to make mistakes, but if you make mistakes, make, make a really big one. Sonia, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me today. Absolute pleasure. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more and to sign up to our mailing list, please visit jct.ie forward slash English. You can also follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and supports at JCT English.